KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, Kirsten Sinema, the Arizona senator who quit the Democratic Party in December, is up for re-election next year. She will be challenged by progressive Democrat Ruben Gallego. Steve Phillips will report and point to evidence that her chances for re-election are poor. His new book, How We Win the Civil War, has a chapter on Arizona politics. Also, what if the government provided a basic income to all residents, something like $1,000 a month? How much could that change poverty and inequality? Sasha Abramsky will report on the experiment in Los Angeles with universal basic income. But first, today's political update. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, what's this I hear about the Democrats' big clean energy projects for solar and wind power and battery technology going to Republican states? Didn't the Republicans vote against all of this? Well, they not only voted against it, but and we're talking here about specifically the clean energy tax credits that made up the bulk of the Inflation Reduction Act. Every Republican voted against it. And so there's simply no Republican support for it. However, early research on where the wind farms and solar farms and electric batteries for uh, electric cars as such are are have sprung up since the passage of the act has found that the overwhelming majority of them are actually in red states or even red con- congressional districts. The Wall Street Journal ran a chart that showed that the 10 largest investments uh, in some form of those facilities that have been made since the uh, tax credits went to those things as a result of the act are in Republican congressional districts. Indeed, ranking number five on that list of the districts that have received the biggest investments as a result of the act was a San Joaquin Valley uh, district, which is represented in Congress by a guy named Kevin McCarthy. (laughs) So we have blue legislation, which is benefiting red parts of the country, which creates some interesting questions. Now, my first question is, why? Why is this stuff going into these areas? Well, some of it is kind of inevitable. Uh, What's not inevitable is the uh, political tilt of different kinds of regions of the country. But obviously, you do not set up uh, wind farms or uh, solar farms or, or factories in densely populated metropolitan areas, which is uh, essentially the democratic areas of of the United States. So that pushes them into more rural areas, which we know are heavily Republican. The solar facilities are, surprise, surprise, disproportionately in the the Sun Belt. The Sun Belt, I get it. (laughs) Which is also the southern part of the United States. And then for factories, It has been the case for a very long time that things like auto factories and airplane factories are built in lower wage anti-union states, parentheses, the South, both by, you know, European companies, uh, the Volkswagens and the Mercedes, which view America as a haven for cheap labor compared to what they would pay at home. 
and for newer facilities from American companies. Some of the electric car facilities that have been announced by the big three automakers and such uh, tend to be in the South as well. Now, what about the political implications of this? Is there any chance that people in these red districts and red states will see that they are benefiting from government spending sponsored by Democrats and that some of them might switch their votes? Well, the Democrats can only hope that that is the case. I mean, the, the, the real irony here is that a number of depressed local communities in heavily Republican areas are going to see their economies revived in furtherance of a, a green energy policy they consider as horrendously woke. So the Democrats will have to do a selling job. Now, I mean, they should consult someone like uh, Ohio Senator, Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, who was up for re-election and is the only Democrat who's been able to win statewide in, in Ohio, a Republican trending state, Lord knows, uh, in, in quite a long time. Uh, he's been the champion of uh, industrial policy, of domestic manufacturing. That has been his calling card to otherwise Republican-inclined Ohio voters, and he needs to give a tutorial to the rest of the party. I should add that historically, most of our development policies have had a particular regional impact that uh, its authors have been able to uh, exploit for political gain. This goes back to the New Deal, when a, a big chunk of the New Deal was development policy for the South with the TVA, for the uh, non-California part of the West with things like Grand Coulee Dam and, 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 and so on, to really secure these, help secure these regions uh, for the New Deal coalition, for Franklin Roosevelt's majorities. Similarly, Ronald Reagan, who was a great Keynesian in that but it was all for military spending and for arms factories and what have you, you know, put all of those arms factories in the uh, in the Sun Belt, which was the new base of the more uh, white racist Republican Party. So the question is, the Democrats having initiated a policy which inherently is just given, you know, the, the amount of land you need for things like factories and uh, wind farms, created a policy that's going to benefit what are not exactly their core areas of support, quite the contrary, can they use that as a form of political outreach to those constituents, to those areas? I'll get back to you on that right <laughs> after the 2024 elections, and we'll okay. see if, if there's been any, any progress. Okay. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in California, regular feature of this broadcast. Today, the capitalists fight back. California law seeking to increase wages and improve working conditions for fast food workers has been set aside for now as a effort by major restaurant trade groups to overturn the law qualified as a measure on next year's ballot. This is the law we've talked about it here before a couple of times. Sometimes it's called the Fast Recovery Act. It was approved last year by the legislature. Now it has been suspended until California voters decide in November 2024 whether to repeal it. Remind us what this is about. This is an act which will give fast food workers a way of having a voice uh, in their industry. Federal labor law preempts state 
laws re regarding forming unions. That's under federal jurisdiction, and that requires a change by the U.S. Congress, which has thus far over the last 60 years not been able to do that to make the law effective again. But sort of running uh, an end run around those limitations, this act creates a, a council which consists of uh, management in fast foods and also the worker side of fast foods. So the two workers on a 10-person panel, two other worker representatives, four management representatives, and two officials of the state of California's industrial relations or whatever it's called, uh, department, labor department, to set standards, uh, to set standards for the industry. And those standards could be minimum wages, which as everyone knows, are at their lowest in things like fast food uh, places, benefits, and what have you. So uh, it, among other things, it could significantly raise the wages of fast food workers and guarantee them enough hours so that it becomes effectively a living wage, which they do not have now. And it, it would affect all the major chains, and not, not just a, a mom and pop, but companies that are, uh, have you know, more, more than 100 outlets nationally, I think, would be subject to uh, the uh, rule set by this, uh, this body. And, and uh, there are, by the count of the state, about 500,000 Californians working in these fast food places that would be covered under, under this new law. So it's a very big deal, and it's a very big and potentially kind of landmark way of giving uh, these workers who don't really have a, a very good work life or a very remunerative work life, a way to uh, you know actually better their better their conditions. This will be on the ballot in November 2024. Uh, seems to me there would normally be a lot of support for this kind of thing. Do you have any idea what the restaurant owners are going to make their TV ads about? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, two things here. Uh, they're going to say this will raise the price of your hamburger. And at, at a time of inflation, you don't want that. Now, of course, we have no idea whether November 2024 will be a time of inflation. Inflation is already significantly falling, even as we speak. And more to the point, they will spend a frigging fortune on their campaign, much as the uh, gig uh, companies like Uber and Lyft did to overturn a legislatively passed law that would have benefited uh, the, the drivers for companies like uh, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and what have you. This gets us to the irony of what has become of the ballot measure process in California. And I wrote about this in 1990, damn it, at the LA Weekly, I did a cover story on this. About you were, how you were just a teenager in 1990. That, that, that's, that's right. I hadn't started shaving. It was about big money's hijacking of a process that was invented to get big money out of politics. When the progressives took over California state government in 1911, they enacted laws permitting initiatives and referenda uh, and recalls in the state of California, which had not been the case before. And the reason for this was that the biggest economic powers in the state, the Southern Pacific Railroad in particular, had bought the entire state legislature. Give a thousand here, a thousand there. Uh, in 1910, this was big money. Uh, so this was conceived, these ballot measures were conceived as a way to circumvent the uh, uh, sway that big money held over California lawmaking. Well, 
Well, we have well, now seen that big money is so big, it actually can buy a, a majority of the electorate through campaign spending uh, in some ways more easily than it can buy the legislature, uh, which is, you know, perhaps the cruelest single irony in California lawmaking. Uh, and it, it is a real problem. Now, the union that has been backing this bill uh, and putting its resources into promoting it is the SEIU, which is the largest union in California. I think it has about 700,000 members in the state, and they will spend a lot of money on this ballot measure. But they also have a few other things to concern themselves with that year, like presidential and congressional elections. And they simply do not have as much money as McDonald's, Starbucks, and so on uh, have to put into this campaign. So this will be an uphill battle, no doubt about it. More news of the class struggle in America. I was taught that capitalism is a system of competing enterprises and that competition is responsible for the unique dynamism of capitalism, the steady stream of innovation, the increases in productivity that make everything so great for all of us. But now I learn that the capitalists have set up barriers to competition, that there's something called non-compete clauses, and that the Biden administration is trying to do something about this. What's the story here? Well, a non-compete clause is usually something in your contract uh, with your employer that forbids you from going to another employer in the same field or in the same locality once you leave this employer. It's, it's in your contract. Most workers aren't even aware that it's in your contract. I how mean, how can this be legal? America's a free country. The origins of this really is sort of an extension of, you know, we have trade secrets, don't share them. Uh, if you're talking about engineers or high-level program writers or what have you. But the practice has spread to companies uh, that do janitorial work, that do even some fast food work. You know, if you're working for McDonald's uh, and you sign such a contract, you can't go to work uh, for Burger King, you know, which is ridiculous. And surveys have shown that at least 18%, perhaps a good deal more, of American workers are covered by these contracts. So the Biden administration, specifically the Federal Trade Commission, which uh, to which Biden has appointed some really serious pro-competition antitrust people like Lena Khan, who chairs that commission, the, the FTC has now said that uh, such agreements don't appear uh, to be in accord with some antitrust legislation, and they announced last week that they're uh, looking at putting in a rule that would ban uh, such uh, uh, such clauses and contracts. And of course, the Chamber of Commerce and some other groups uh, blew a gasket. It, it's obviously, from their point of view, a controversial proposal. This is now in what's formally called the rulemaking process. They're getting comments. And likely, uh, some form of this rule will be put in place uh, later this year. Now, if a company wants to keep its workers so that they don't quit and go to the, to the competition, is there anything they can do about that? 
Well, I did a little quick piece on that. I, I, I noticed a story in the Wall Street Journal where they had talked to some business side lawyers on this. And, they, you know, they, they, these business side lawyers uh, bill the major companies at a very high rate, but they're giving really expert advice. And the advice they seemed to be giving was, well, maybe you should just pay your workers more. Maybe <laughs> you should uh, uh, occasionally uh, give promotions. This apparently hadn't occurred to uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, employers, including major corporations, as a way to keep their workers without, you know, possibly what appears to be illegal compulsion. Uh, so it was kind of a revelation. A little light bulb goes on. Oh, uh, raises. It's good to know that the legal community is uh, is is not so brain dead that it uh, couldn't think of this. It's, uh, I suppose, an encouraging sign. Well, let's talk about politics in California for a minute. We're expecting Adam Schiff to announce any day, any hour that he's officially a candidate for the Senate seat currently occupied by Dianne Feinstein, challenging Katie Porter, who has announced, and probably Barbara Lee of Oakland, who has not announced. But I see that back in Washington, in the House of Representatives, the Republican Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy has kicked Adam Schiff off the House Intelligence Committee, which he had headed. Uh, this apparently is a punishment for Adam Schiff exposing, you may remember, the story that Trump had withheld aid to Ukraine in order to pressure President Zelensky to work with Trump to undermine Joe Biden's 2020 presidential run. And Schiff then led the House impeachment case uh, in the Senate trial, uh, first impeachment of Donald Trump. How do you think Adam Schiff being kicked off the House Intelligence Committee will affect his run for senator? The only thing it's bad news for is the Intelligence Committee, which could use Adam Schiff's uh, expertise. There's no doubt about it. But Adam Schiff already uh, has been the target of so many slanderous tweets from Donald Trump himself back in the day when Trump could tweet, already as sort of a, a demon figure. This, this basically is publicity that I think actually helps Adam Schiff in a contest against uh, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee and who knows, maybe even Ro Khanna to succeed Dianne Feinstein. Uh, he, he gets in the headlines by virtue of being kicked off something by a, a, a person most Californians and a political tendency most Californians uh, believe are, are, are just, you know, below, beneath contempt. One last thing. We've learned uh, this week that Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to be Trump's vice presidential running mate in the 2024 reelection campaign. Isn't Marjorie Taylor Greene the one who suggested that the cause of last year's wildfires in California was a Jewish space laser? She is. And I, I, I think this may be a move that could cause people in retrospect to think better of Sarah Palin. Uh, <laughs> she was merely a jerk on a Republican <laughs> vice presidential candidate. Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, I mean, although if you, if you if you put them together, uh, if we remember that Sarah Palin said, uh, you know, she could see the Russians arming or something from her from her house in 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 Alaska, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene can take us to a place where the Rothschild-backed Jewish space <laughs> lasers are actually uh, taking off, and 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 so th this may be a convoluted way of boosting Sarah Palin's credibility. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. It's too complicated for me. 
I saw there's a morning consult poll released on Monday of Republican support for primary candidates. Trump, 49%. Ron DeSantis, 30%. Mike Pence, 7%. It looks like Republican voters want Trump again in 2024. Believe me, every Democratic political consultant also wants Trump again in 2024. (laughs) Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We have big news about Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, who quit the Democratic Party in December. She's up for re-election next year, and Ruben Gallego, the popular and progressive congressman from Phoenix, has announced he will challenge her as the Democrat on the ballot. She will be independent unless she drops out. For comment, we turn to Steve Phillips. His new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. He also hosts the podcast Democracy in Color, and he writes for The Nation and The Guardian. We reached him today in Washington. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, just to review a little of the history here, Kirsten Sinema declared she was leaving the Democratic Party after a number of votes in the Senate that turned Democrats against her. In 2021, she voted against raising the minimum wage. Then she voted against amending the filibuster rules to pass voting rights legislation. The Arizona Democratic Party went so far as to censure her over her support for the filibuster. And now there's a a poll, a recent poll from public policy polling at the end of December that showed Sinema was with just 13% of the vote in a three-way race with Ruben Gallego and perhaps the most likely Republican, the far right-wing election denier, Carrie Lake. Gallego got 40, the Republican got 41 Cinema got 13, and this was before he announced he would be a candidate. So for starters, who is Ruben Gallego? He's the sitting congressman from Arizona. He's a former uh, state legislator there, served in the Arizona State House. And he's been noted for really being both very progressive and then a very strong and unapologetic ally of the progressive movement and progressive issues. And that's really um, the lane and identity that he's carved out for himself over the past decade, basically. He has a great video that he just posted on Twitter, sort of the introducing himself as a Senate candidate that uh, reminds us he comes from a really poor background and he served in the Marine Corps in Iraq in a unit that suffered a huge number of casualties. Yeah, no, he's got really strong community, accessible, average person bona fides, right? In terms of, you know, coming from a low income background, you know, having, again, having, like you're saying, having served in the military, you know, you would think you would inoculate somebody against some of the attacks from the right, but not necessarily. But it does show that 
I think it will be something that's appreciated by some sector um, of voters in the middle about somebody who served his country and who risked uh, his life um, for the for the country. Meanwhile, Republicans in Arizona have been running, let's call them crazy election deniers and losing. You want to remind us about that recent history? Right. Well, you're mentioning Carrie Lake, who ran for governor and has uh, lost to Katie Hobbs as an unapologetic election denier around 2020, a strong Trumpite, somebody who never served in public life previously, he had been like a TV broadcaster or a person, but had no real political experience. But as Trump showed on the right, that's not required. You know, so ran as a denier about the 2020 election and that alienated people as well as ran in ex- kind of inexplicably attacking John McCain in Arizona. It was a very beloved Republican in, in Arizona. So she lost the election, which was you know, kind of a surprise you know, to many people somewhat all around, although she has yet to concede that she has <laughs> lost, even though Katie Hobbs is in the governor's mansion as we speak. Yes. So it'd be interesting to see how does she try to pull off running for Senate while claiming that she is actually the current governor of Arizona. So but that's reflective of, you know, and then you also had election deniers running for secretary of state and but, attorney general. Yes. Right. And then we bear, then almost they almost got into that position. They lost the Democrat only won by 511 votes for that seat. So there's very much of a of a MAGA, you know, right wing nut job slate of candidates that they fielded in Arizona um, who all came close, but they did not prevail. Meanwhile, over the last couple of years, cinema has steadily lost support among Democrats while at the same time gaining significant financial backing from private equity. Big donors whose main political goal in life seems to be preserving the carried interest exemption. And to make clear where her uh, uh, allegiances are, last week she went to Davos. You want to tell us that story? Yeah, no, she's very steadily and methodically gravitated. I don't even would say to the right, but she gravitated to it's she's gravitated away from her progressive roots and really towards the financial elite, uh, even more so than the right wing per, per se. Right. So she right famously avoided against increasing the minimum wage. And it's like, so what was the upside of that other than to carry the water of the of the corporate sector in that regard. So it's this odd combination, I think, of enhancing her own perceived significance um, by being um, opposed to the key parts of the democratic agenda, but also, as you're saying, really increasingly doing the bidding of the very wealthy sector of the of the society, right? Hanging out in Davos with the top billionaires in the world who are coming together and whatnot. And so rubbing shoulders with those people is a long way from her original supposed roots in the Green parties, or certainly was, you know, associated, affiliated with it way back in the day, you know, 15 years ago or so. So, you know, which raises the larger question about what's the, will she just walk away and take a big paycheck? I guess the parallel is, will she continue to get a paycheck or she can't move their legislation? So that remains an open question. And Arizona, as you and I have talked about here before, is in a state of political and demographic transition, a growing Latino population, a dwindling population of older white Republicans. You have a chapter on Arizona in your new book, How We Win the Civil War. Remind us briefly about what's going on 
in Arizona. Well, first of all, it's, it's not it's not irrelevant that Arizona sits on the border of Mexico. You know, I think what gets left out left out of these conversations about immigration is that Arizona, you know, 150 years ago was part of Mexico, <laughs> and so when we had the you know, the Mexican American War and the annexation of the Southwest, so there's a very strong connection between Mexico and Arizona, Mexican Americans and uh, Mexicans in in that state. And so that demographic revolution has unfolded over the past 30 years dramatically, and then very much so been brought into the electoral space over the past 10 to 15 years. And then most significantly, there was as a response to the demographic changes, Arizona was the leader in the right in the anti-immigration, anti-immigrant legislation. So 2010, they had this, you know, very draconian anti-immigrant show me your papers bill, which would empower police to stop pretty much anybody and ask them if they were legitimately citizens. And what the significance of that was beyond the policy of it is there was a spontaneous organic movement arose where you have all of these people became politicized, mainly people of color, mainly women of color and Latinas of, uh, out there who got activated and got organized and got committed to doing civic engagement and political work and have done it for a decade and built a whole array of organizations that have registered hundreds of thousands of people of color. And that's what changed the composition of the electorate and has brought about the results that have been favorable Democrats in, over the past four, four to five years. And in the meantime, the white population of Arizona has declined, I learned from your book, from 78% in 1990 to 54% in 2020. It'll be even less in 2024. But for the Democrats, the big challenge has been turnout, right. uh, especially of Latinos uh, in 2020. 45% of Latinos cast ballot, 76% of whites cast ballots. Uh, that looks terrible, but in your book, you call it promising. Why? Well, first of all, it's because it's an increase in terms of it was even less prior to uh, 2020, right? So in 2016, just 34% of the uh, Latinos actually turned out to vote. And so going up to 45% was a significant progress. But what it means is that in terms of the non-voting population, that the pool is comprised of a large number of Latinos in particular. And so if we are the, able to raise the percentage of Latinos who are participating, there were 900,000 Latinos who were eligible and did not vote in 2020. That's a very significant um, pool of people to be uh, working in and to be organizing and trying to bring out to, to the to, to the polls. And so it's a very and they tend to vote, you know, certainly majority, if not often, oftentimes two thirds of Latinos vote Democratic. And so that's a very promising area to focus time, energy and effort. And as they've shown that they are able to bring people into the electorate get them to the polls, get more Latinos um, participating, and the results have impacted the statewide elections from 2018, the Senate races and Secretary of State, 2020 Biden and the U.S. Senate, and then 2022, uh, really the whole slate, almost of most of the statewide races. So the challenge for the Democratic Party in Arizona, the challenge for Ruben Gallegos running for Senate now is first to 
register more Latino voters, and then get them to vote. And this is a job not just for the candidate, not just for the party, but for a series of organizations and civic engagement groups that have been fighting the long-term fight, not just a single election or a single candidate, to advance progressive politics in Arizona. And this is really what your book is about and your chapter on Arizona is about. You write there about uh, the key groups, uh, and I want to talk about some of them, the ones that are uh, let's start with Lucha, Living United for Change in Arizona. Tell us about Lucha. It's one of the main commu- uh, Latino community-based organizations that came out of the fight against the Show Me Your Papers bill in 2010. And so Alejandro Gomez um, is one of the key leaders of the organization, the executive director. And so she got her start in that fight in 2010. They were they, And there's a very good New York Times piece that she wrote a couple of years ago talking about, about how so many people came to be part of this vigil, but then eventually got politicized on top of that. And so Alejandro's done this amazing job. She's one of the top political leaders, I would say, even in the country in terms of the effectiveness of what they've done. And so she's the executive director of Lucha. It's got broad and deep ties across the state, and they do very strong, really year-round organizing, right? So it's both on issues as well as turning on people for elections in particular, and that she was involved in running, uh, working on a statewide ballot measure. So their organizing work, they identified the you know, economic inequality as a key piece, uh, important issue from people. And they said they were going to do a ballot measure around the minimum wage. And then they were told not to by like a lot of the Democratic consultants and whatnot. But they went ahead and did it. They organized it. And they they passed and won this ballot measure to raise the minimum wage the same year Trump won Arizona in 2016. So Lucha as an organization and Alejandra as uh, the key uh, leader there um, have been real stalwarts in the work that's been happening there over the past decade. And then there's a coalition called One Arizona. Tell us about them. There are two coalitions that are slightly overlapping. So One Arizona is a coalition of the 501c3, um, the nonpartisan groups that are doing the more the generic civic engagement organizing um, work. It's a, almost three dozen organizations now. Um, Lucha is part of it, but there's like a Native American group. And then there's groups in, in these other different parts of the state as well. And then there's also Arizona Wins, which is the 501c4 more advocacy organization that can do more of the partisan type of work. And so, again, they divide up the work among themselves. And I you know, watched this, you know, was involved in this very carefully in 2022. And they would put out weekly reports around who was taking what legislative district, who was taking what city, who was knocking on doors. And they were tracking the number of doors that were being knocked on, the number of conversations that were being had. And that coalition had uh, it knocked on three million doors across the state, had a million conversations with Arizonans and played a key role in turning out um, large numbers of progressive voters that made the difference in almost all of these races. And part of that is another uh, group, smaller group called Case Action Fund, which is a partner of the labor union, Unite Here Local 11, very famous where I come from in Los Angeles, very mm-hmm. active in Arizona, also in the Georgia Senate race. Um, tell us about Case Action. Yeah, so Case has been a key partner as well in that and there, are, there are a number of places in the country where that community labor partnership has been very critical. I mean, labor is a strong um, backbone to much of the progressive movement. 
the Arizona Education Association is run by Randy Perez, the executive director, who was a very key leader in fighting the the author of the bill around the Show Me Your Papers in 2010. Randy read, led this effort to recall him. He was the head of the state Senate on the Republican side, and they successfully recalled him. And that was really kind of the breaking the dam, showing that the movement could have an impact. And so he's gone on to play a key role in labor. And so later, labor supporting case, and like you're saying, Los Angeles is probably exhibit A, right, back from the day when the County Federation of Labor in L.A., partnered with then community activist Karen Bass, right, who is now the mayor. <laughs> yes. And so it's been a very similar piece in in Arizona. That case has been, because they've had that labor partnership, it's been able to do a high level of the quantity of the voter contact work and the voter mobilization and, and the across the state, um, really in the over the past six years in particular. So these are the groups that together flip the state, elected President Biden, Senator Mark Kelly, the current governor, secretary of state and and attorney general. Will they be able to elect Ruben Gallego to replace Kirsten Sinema? That's the big question. Now, kind of the mainstream pundit view of this is, well, the Democrats are going to split over this, and that is the way the Republicans will win. But there's some poll numbers that say that's really not the most likely scenario. Uh, The polls from late December, which is before Gallego announced he was running, show that Sinema is mostly liked only by conservatives now. She has a 43% favorability rating with Trump voters, only 20% with Biden voters. And she doesn't seem to have a real path to victory. When she is out of the race, uh, Gallego leads 48 to 47. So it seems like this is actually a very promising ground for the Democrats to to move to a progressive leader for Arizona in the Senate to join Mark Kelly. Um, what are your closing thoughts about where we stand on this? Yeah, and I think that that's correct. I think a lot of people were fearful that she's going to run as a third party when that split the vote, and that presumed that she had strong Democratic support and she would take it with her. And so that poll shows that she doesn't. There was an October uh, 2022 poll by Civics um, that also showed that she, among all voters, had a 20 percent favorable rating (laughs) um, as compared to 47 percent right from Mark Kelly. So this notion that she has that she would be a credible threat is not showing up empirically in the polling data. And then the other piece that people don't fully appreciate is that because we're talking about the demographics, the plain truth of the matter is it matters in Arizona if you have a Latino last name and that people did not grow. So in all of the Democrats won almost all the different statewide races, right? But the attorney general race, they won just by 511 votes. Uh, Hobbs won by 17,000 for governor. Adrian Fontes ran for secretary of state with his Latino last name and won by 120,000 votes. Yeah. So that's an additional element of what actually makes Gallego a potentially stronger candidate than people fully appreciate. We will be returning to this crucial fight with Steve Phillips. He's the author of How We Win the Civil War and a contributor to The Nation magazine. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Back 
It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. What if government provided a basic income to all residents, something like $1,000 a month? How much could that change inequality and poverty? Los Angeles is experimenting with that idea, starting with 3,000 people. Sasha Abramsky followed four of the families in that program for a year. His report is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Sasha's work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone, as well as The Nation. And he's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty, The House of 20,000 Books, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. John, so good to talk to you again. First, let's start with the idea of universal basic income, UBI. Where does this come from? Is this Karl Marx? So if you go back hundreds of years, there are certainly a radical rabble-rousers like Thomas Paine who are talking about something like a basic income. But more recently, the idea actually transcends ideology. So in the 1960s, you had Martin Luther King advocating a basic income. But then you also had Milton Friedman advocating a basic income. And Friedman, you know, however you sort of shake him out, Friedman is not a grand progressive. Um, you also had Richard Nixon, who at various times in his career embraced the idea of a basic income. The concept is pretty simple. The concept is basically that a wealthy country has an awful lot of people who either don't have the skills, don't have the training, or don't have the geographic opportunity to find work. And we as a society have the resources to actually provide a degree of comfort and security. So the idea is that if we choose not to do that, that's a political choice. But if we choose to channel money towards certain people, there's tremendous societal benefits. And how is this different from unemployment compensation or food stamps or uh, rent assistance? Yeah. It's related to it in the sense that society comes up with various ways of ensuring basic economic dignity and security to people on the margins. Where it differs is that it has no strings attached. So food stamps, for example, are a classic case. They're a great part of the social safety net. I'm a huge fan of the existence of food stamps. They make life better for millions of Americans, but they come with strings attached. You can only buy cold foods in supermarkets that you then have to prepare which is all well and good unless you have nowhere to prepare that food. So one of the families that I talked to, Kamiko and Vaughan and their five children, they'd temporarily fallen into homelessness um, during the pandemic. They were living out of a car, basically, and then they were put into a um, motel during the pandemic. Well, that was better than being on the streets, but they didn't have a kitchen. So food stamps for them were fairly limited because what they needed was the ability to get pre-made food, go to a supermarket and buy a roast chicken, for example, which is heated and therefore ready to eat. And they couldn't do it with food stamps. You can do that with basic income. The, the premise of basic income is that if you give people money, by and large, they will know fairly wisely how to spend that money. It doesn't mean everybody's going to make perfect choices, but by and large, people know what they need. They know that they need to get school supplies for their kids. They know they need to get food. If their car breaks down, they know they need to have the ability to repair that car so that if they do get a job, they can drive to work. Just basic, basic things like that, which is the wonder of UBI. And this sort of really conservative narrative is if you give poor people money, they're just going to fritter it away. And it's sort of there's a moral jeopardy argument. Well, in fact, what I found was when I interviewed Kimiko and Fawn, 
They bought food for their kids. So they bought school supplies for the kids. And then they had a little bit left over and they began taking their kids on outings to museums or to the beach or to parks where they had to drive a few miles. And that's, you know, on the one level frivolous. On the other level, it's vital for child's development. So UBI gives people the option for dignity and it gives people the option to really expand the horizons, especially if they're children. I was amazed to learn from your cover story in The Nation that 80 cities are experimenting with UBI right now. It has the wonderful name Big Leap, B-I-G-L-E-A-P, an acronym that stands for what? Well, the big stands for Basic Income Guarantee. The LEAP stands for Los Angeles Economic Assistance Pilot. But the basic premise is that if you give targeted assistance to people in poor neighborhoods, you make it more likely that they're going to get jobs. You make it more likely their kids are going to thrive in schools. You make it more likely that you're going to be able to break things like the um, schools to prison pipeline. All the problems of deeply entrenched poverty, you have a chance of breaking it if you can provide guaranteed income over a prolonged period of time. The real work that you did was not just sort of explaining the logic of this, but exploring in depth the experience of four people over the course of a year, four families, to see how this worked, in what ways didn't it work. The first UBI recipient you write about is a woman named Alicia Moore. She's got five kids. She's had some good working class jobs. Most recently, she was a bus driver for the LA Metropolitan Transit Authority. She had begun having children very young and she had struggled economically for all of her life. She'd come from a deeply impoverished background. Her mother, she told me, had become a crack addict in the 1980s and sort of any stability that she had at that point disappeared. And so this was somebody who from day one had faced obstacles and they weren't just economic obstacles. They were psychological obstacles. She had a lot of damage, a lot of trauma because of the way she'd experienced the world as a young person in particular. She did have employment episodically, but she'd struggled to keep the employment. She'd been injured on the job. Things had happened. She'd lost her employment. She'd lost her income and she'd lost her housing. So she was in a very precarious situation at the start of the pandemic. She and her younger children were living with one of her grown up daughters in her grown up daughter's affordable housing home. But it was very crowded. And she had no long-term stability and she had no sort of sense of where her income would emerge from. And she applied for the basic income. And the, the way it worked is you had to apply, you had to show that you were poor and they had way more applicants than they had spaces. So they, if, if you sort of met the criteria, they put you into a lottery system. And if you were chosen, you were one of the lucky winners and you, you got this money for a year. And, you know, her story was complicated because she had all these grand dreams. She was going to save a lot of money. She was going to put it aside to put together a down payment for a house. And over the year, that didn't work out. She didn't manage to save money. She had lots of emergency things happen. She had um, just basic bills that had to be paid. Things happened that made it very hard for her to save. So she is not somebody you can look at and say, all right, at the back end of this program, her life was fundamentally changed. The trajectory of her life was fundamentally changed. But what it did do was it gave her a year of security. This is somebody who very easily could have ended up on the streets or very easily could have ended up in absolute destitution. And instead, she had that modicum of security. She could pay her bills. She could feed her children. She could take them on outings. Every so often, she could buy them presents, just the things that parents like to do for their children. And so her life had improved 
but her long-term stability probably hadn't. And that's one of the things that the researchers are looking at. You know, does this fundamentally change the trajectory of people's lives in the long run? Or is it something that's likely to eventually become a sort of souped up better version of the welfare system where it serves as a safety net with dignity for people on the margins? And in Alicia Moore's case, it served more, more in the latter kind of way. And you've already mentioned another woman you wrote about, Kameko Charles. This is the family that was living in their car. The husband needed an immigration lawyer, and this was a big problem. I, I spent a lot of time with them. They were very generous to me. They welcomed me into their house. They were living in, um, I think it was public housing at the time. And I spent a lot of time going with them on outings to the beach with their kids and that sort of thing. Vaughan was a, a car mechanic by training. He was a, he was a car mechanic from Belize, I believe. And he needed to get his immigration papers in order. And like so many vulnerable immigrants at the bottom, they'd given quite a bit of money to an immigration lawyer who basically had done nothing and vanished. So now they were starting again. So it wasn't that he was sort of hiding from the system. He was trying to get everything organized. But what it meant was that they had very limited access to resources. Health insurance was a big issue. He didn't have health insurance. He couldn't afford to buy new prescription glasses. So he was using these glasses that just didn't work anymore. So one of the things that the basic income, the pilot program gave them was enough money for basic things like he could buy spectacles, which actually worked for him, which had the right prescription lenses. Now, that's huge because, you know, if you can't see properly, you can't work. The other thing that was fascinating to me was, and this is, you know, what the parents told me was the kids began calming down that there was so much anger and so much rage because they'd lived this sort of utterly circumscribed life for a few years, couldn't afford to go out, could never afford to go even to McDonald's for a meal, couldn't afford to do basic things. And suddenly their parents were able to take them to the pier so they could teach them how to fish, or they were able to take them on beach outings. And they talked about that they didn't quite manage to save enough, but they talked about taking them to Disneyland, which would have been the first big family trip they'd ever done to an amusement park or anything like that. So they started doing things that expanded the kids' horizons. And there was this enthusiasm. It was really infectious. I mean, I, I loved it. I'd go there and I'd talk with them. And there was just this sort of joie de vivre. They were, they were sort of engaged with the world again after years of not being able to afford to engage. And that is exactly what that kind of program is designed to do. It triggers a whole set of sort of psychological changes that shift the way both the adults and the children engage with the world. But even if they didn't have a savings account with money at the back end, their life expectations and their life journey had changed. And it was just fascinating and wonderful to watch. Then you wrote about a woman named Brittany Frost, 35 years old, mother of an eight-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl. She graduated from Cal State Fullerton with degrees in both business management and a minor in public relations, but she had a lot of health problems, which can be extremely debilitating. Brittany Frost was an example of somebody who sort of completely bucked the stereotype. Conservatives love to put out there this idea that sort of there's an undeserving poor, that there are these poor people who just make utterly flawed personal decisions, and, and that's why they're in poverty. And that may be the case with some people. But in Brittany Frost's case, she was playing by the rule book. She had enrolled in CSU Fullerton to study business. She had gotten lots and lots of work. She was doing everything she could to try to save money to keep her kids afloat. And then she was diagnosed with cancer in her 20s. And it threw everything. She didn't have a family that had resources. She was on her own financially. And suddenly she was a young woman trying to raise two kids, trying to go to university with a cancer diagnosis. And 
she spiraled downward economically. So she ended up losing her, her apartment. She ended up having to move in with her grandmother. Things just went terribly wrong economically. And for her, the big leap was an absolute saving grace because it allowed her to get back on her feet. It allowed her to finish her degree. It allowed her to enroll her kids in things like after school football and basketball and gymnastics classes. And suddenly her family was functioning and thriving again. And she managed to get her degree. She has these great plans now to get a master's degree. She's firmly on a trajectory where she's going to end up with employment that's going to provide a decent income. And she'll be able to get a house or an apartment for herself and her kids. None of that would have been possible without the big leap. And I asked her at the end of my year with her, I was like, you know, what do you say to people who said, well, you know, why should we give poor people a thousand dollars? And she looked at me and she said, because we need it. We need some (laughs) help feeding our children. She says, nobody says, why do we give middle class families thousands of dollars in tax rebates for mortgages, which we do without thinking about it. But that's a huge subsidy to middle class people. Yet somehow, when we talk about giving a very little amount of money, a thousand dollars a month is hardly going to make somebody rich. When we talk about giving that little amount of money to poor people, suddenly all this conversation of moral hazard kicks in. And Brittany Frost is a classic example of why that actually makes no sense, because that thousand dollars in the long run, it's not charity. That is a massive return on an investment. You give a small amount of money to Brittany Frost and her family, and you put them on an upward trajectory economically. And she'll be paying taxes. She'll be contributing to society for the rest of her life. Society will gain far more than $12,000 through that intervention. That's the Milton Friedman approach. That's why it's not just sort of people on the left who say this is a good idea. It's why some fairly libertarian conservative economists also love it, because in the end, it does act as a sort of accelerator, helping people back into, well, back up the economic ladder again. And finally, you followed a man you call Julio, 41-year-old from Mexico with a wife and three kids. He had been working for $14 an hour in a textile factory in the LA Garment District, and then the pandemic hit and the factory closed. How did Julio do? Well, you know, he, he, he disappeared in the end. And that happens with some of the participants. At a certain point, he stopped corresponding with the um, city office that was responsible for the program. They couldn't find him. I couldn't locate him. And so he sort of, at a certain point, was no longer part of my story. Again, what was so moving to me when I first met him was he was absolutely on the margins. He had nothing when the pandemic had hit. He didn't qualify for unemployment or anything like that. He ended up selling fruit on the street in downtown L.A., and he would make on a good day 50 or 60 or $70. And he'd work for 12 hours in the largely deserted pandemic era downtown streets. And he said to me, you know, how much stress he was under and how high his blood pressure had gotten and how he couldn't sleep properly. And his wife was in the same situation. And then he said, look, I, I was told to apply for this. I applied for it. And they invited me in. I had an interview and I was chosen. And he said, my life had changed. You know, suddenly I could pay my bills. And he began being able to pay his rent again. He, he began being able to buy clothing for his kids. They'd had to scrap everything, any discretionary spending when the pandemic hit had gone. Cell phones had gone, new clothing had gone, just all the basics were being reined in. And so for him, what the big leap meant was dignity. It, it was a degree of security where the most basic, basic things like paying your rent could be covered for a few months. Now, I don't know the end of his story. Because as I said, he disappeared. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know where he is. So there's a question mark there. But the beginning of his story, I do know, the beginning of his story in The Big Leap was transformational. So in the end, do you conclude that 
$1,000 a month is a pretty good amount. And obviously a year doesn't seem to be enough. Yeah, it's not It's not a living wage. A living wage in California is $20, $30 an hour. The minimum wage in California is $15 an hour. So in no way, shape or form does it substitute for a living wage or a living income. What it does do is it provides a no strings attached baseline. So unlike welfare, which is sort of designed to be exclusionary, designed to be humiliating, designed to find ways to say, well, no, you can't do this if you're on the program. You can't live here. You can't buy this. The whole point of a basic income is it basically assumes that the recipients are responsible moral agents. And on that assumption, it says, go and spend the money in the way you need to spend the money and use it to try to right your economic boat. Now, not everybody's going to be able to do that. You know, in Alicia Moore's case, she ended up at the end of the process as economically marginalized as she was at the beginning of the process. So not everybody's going to be able to do it, but it's a it's a window into a set of possibilities. And so, yeah, I'm a fan of this. I think that the more cities adopt this and, you know, it costs L.A. 30 million dollars. That sounds like a lot of money, but L.A. has got a multi multi billion dollar budget. You know, if cities and states start adopting these at first as a sort of pilot program and then eventually as a part of their expanded safety net, I think it could be transformational. Sasha Abramsky, he wrote the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. It's called The Grand Experiment about universal basic income in Los Angeles. It's my favorite article in The Nation for a long time. You can read it at thenation.com. Sasha, thanks for doing this project and thanks for talking with us today. John, it is always a joy talking with you. Thank you very much. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Bye.